Clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? Welcome to week 51 of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Welcome to the party, pal! Tonight we're talking about, in this penultimate episode of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast, Die Hard, John, 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 the 1988 summer blockbuster classic action movie starring Bruce Willis and a unknown, relatively unknown, Alan Rickman. Caroline, yeah. what is your history with Die Hard? Before we get into anything, because really? this is this before we do writers, before we do I'm directors. Shocked. What are you doing? I feel like every week now we're just getting wilder and wilder. Because this movie is the spark of the is this a Christmas movie debate? Yeah. It's Die Hard. Die Hard is the center of the is this a Christmas movie debate. So I it gotta is. know right now, right away. Tell me, what is your history with this movie? I had never seen it before. I had only seen bits and pieces, and I was super familiar with it from catchphrases and ugly sweater parties and stuff like that. But start to finish watching it, I had not watched it. That How about you? Shocking to me. Really? Yes. <laughs> it's the wrong time for me. I'm too young. I'm not into action movies at the time it comes out. Yeah, no, there's no reason I would have seen this. It was too much for me. This was a VHS movie uh, for me. I don't know if my sisters or my parents had seen it in the theaters. They were a bit older than me. Ten-year-old Mike, uh, you know, as old as I looked and as big as I was, even at 10, I, I couldn't get into an R-rated movie to see the nudity and all of the excessive violence that this movie has. But this was definitely a VHS movie. Uh, I watched it a bunch. I feel like this was one of those ones that I probably wore the tape out on. I knew all the lines. Yeah, uh, definitely a formative movie of my youth. Wow. Well, let's break it down a little bit here. Based on the 1979 novel, Nothing Lasts Forever, I know that much. And I know that it's the sequel to The Detective. And I know that Sinatra was in that one, right? Not only was Sinatra in the adaptation of Roderick's book, The Detective, because he was in The Detective, they they contractually had to offer the role of what became John McClane to Frank Sinatra. Could you imagine Frank Sinatra in this movie? I Could? think he was like 72, Lord. 73. Even when he, I don't care if he was 50 or 40. Like, could you imagine him? I just can't imagine him. So Roderick Thorpe uh, wrote the book that both the detective and then this sequel, Nothing Less Forever. He himself was an ex-policeman. So I think he was just, mm. he was living out some of his own yippee you know, uh, policeman fantasies with these books. So, so. Uh, The screenplay was by Jeb Stewart, and then it was rewritten by Stephen E. DeSue. 
D'Souza, and it was directed by John McTiernan, who up to this point had been most well-known because of Predator the year before, two years before. Now we have our first red flag, Mike, here. Oh, I knew it. I knew this was going to be a red flag for you. It's released July 15th, 1988. Yes. Okay. Yes. July 15th, folks. That's a little, that's a little worrisome. The budget was $28 million and the box office haul was $141.6 million. So they did great. Stone Cold hit. Stone Cold hit. Launched a franchise. I mean, there ends up being four, five Die Hard movies. Paul wears the Yippie Kaye MF uh, sweater every Christmas. So it's it's got all the merch, too. Uh, So Fox was looking for a summer blockbuster. Now, it's in the 80s is when you finally get the idea of a summer blockbuster. That hadn't really been a thing in movies where studios were were really lining up depending on release schedules. That's the thing that really starts to take shape in the 80s. And obviously, 30 years later, 40 years later, dictates so much of the movie release schedule in Hollywood. Would. But Fox was looking for a summer blockbuster and they ended up so they fast tracked this movie to release for the summer and it was shot pretty much over the winter of 87 into 88. If they had just let it grow, it probably would have released probably at Christmas time. Uh, but because it was being fast tracked because they wanted to to bank it as a summer blockbuster, that's how they wanted to market it. This movie launched a genre, this idea of an ordinary guy, you know, in the right place at the wrong time. No, it's like an ordinary guy in extraordinary circumstances. Right. I mean, the, <laughs> and, and the skyscraper genre also has launched. I mean, how many movies the has skyscraper genre? I hadn't considered that well i mean i think all of your major uh you know action movie stars have probably done a version of the skyscraper drama the the die hard like movie i think dangling off the roof i think the rock actually has a movie called skyscraper it's rambo in a rambo in an elevator that was actually the original pitch for this they eventually toned it down to make it not a rambo-esque you know muscle head kind of guy this was they ended up taking making john mcclain an ordinary guy just doing the best he can in the situation but the original pitch was this is die hard is rambo in a skyscraper fascinating well let's hear what the actual one sentence plot summary is it's an nypd officer tries to save his wife and several others just like a handful couple taken hostage by german terrorists question mark during a christmas party at the nakatomi plaza in los angeles Nakatomi Plaza at the time was the unfinished Fox building in Los Angeles. Fox actually paid itself rent for use of the unfinished building. They were not even it was in it was mid construction. So when you see like the the building is under construction in the movie, it's because the building was under construction in real life. It has become such an icon that tourists are actually banned from standing outside taking pictures of it. That is so crazy. How can you ban people from taking pictures of it? Because building? so many people flock to take pictures of it. Uh, yeah, it's it's just this. I mean, if any of you guys out there watch like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, like my son, I, I, I watched this with Tom. Overall, I felt like it was a rite of passage movie and we recovered it for the, for the podcast. He's like, I know everything about Die Hard because Jake Peralta, you know, uh, Andy uh, Samberg on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, is a massive Die Hard fan. They have gone to L.A. and done like a tour of the Die Hard like scenes and stuff in that TV show. For a generation of us out there, this movie 
you know, lives like rent free in our brains in so many different ways. All right. So how did you feel about Bruce Willis playing John McClane at the time? I know you're a big Moonlighting fan. I, I know this about you. Fan, yes. So could you mentally make the leap that this is your Bruce Willis from Moonlighting is now he's going to be a police officer like running through the this building with a with guns and whatever? Can you do this? Is it is it viable for you? Easy, because the sense of humor was all the same. The allure of Bruce Willis has always been the dry wit, you know, the the rolling the eyes, the well-placed sarcastic comment. He's always got a little smirk on his lips. Oh, wait, everything is delivered with a smirk. And and that's how that's how moonlighting was. And that's how that's what I think of when I think of John McClane. Yes, there's the, you know, the butt kicking action hero. But for me, it's the crawling through the air vent. Come out to the coast. We'll have a few drinks, have a few laughs. That's what I think of when I think of <laughs> John McClane. Like, that's what it is. Him him knuckling his toes into the rug. That's what I think of. I think of the humor when I think of John McClane first. And so be very easy transition to uh to moonlighting for me it all made sense it all made sense they have a they have a great series called the movies that made us um over on is it netflix netflix yes they have this one and man is it fascinating to watch especially john mctiernan deal with bruce willis's humor and just the fact that it's just he coming from predator and everything was just like not about it um and so i i think that they had to walk such a fascinating line with him of yeah we do know him as this smirky guy but at the same time you have to believe on some level he can do the level of insanity that this movie has when you said extreme violence i mean there's a lot of stuff that happens in this that that you have to believe he could really do this yeah, it, there are superhuman feats. Again, and I think the movie never loses sight of the fact that this is not Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is not Sylvester Stallone. This is, you know, he's not a muscly guy doing these extraordinary things. You know, this is this is way before Marvel movies and, and, and superhero movies. Just an average guy who bleeds because he's bleeding everywhere. Yes. His arms are bleeding. Anytime his feet are bleeding, they, you know. They showed his feet. I was like, <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. I mean, uh, Bruce Willis even like recently, a couple of years ago, gave an interview. He said, I still get squeamish anytime I see clips of myself pulling glass out of my feet in that movie. Oh, God, uh, no. Yeah. And they're prosthetic <laughs> feet. They're not even real feet. He was he was wearing like fake feet on top of his feet so that they could do those scenes. And he still That's gets squeamish. So yeah. Ew. It all works for me. For me, this is the guy I wanted to be. I never wanted to be Arnold. I never wanted to be Stallone. I didn't think Rambo. I didn't think Rocky or... You know, predator. These were not guys I wanted to emulate. I wanted to play harmonica and and hang out with like Sybil Shepherd. <laughs> Bruce Willis was the guy I was emulating. Him and Harry Stone, they were like my guys to be like. That's who I thought was cool. This was like the height of it. Like this is this is the blueprint for how I'm gonna be this guy. I mean, obviously, he's not really an average guy. He obviously has you know all this police training, and he's very um, he's very clever. Like I don't yes. I don't think. I don't I I will give him a lot of credit. Like I don't think the average guy comes up with all of these things. Well, your NYPD cop is better than your average cop. So I <laughs> nice. I do have to say, okay, so I don't want to get into is this a Christmas movie quite yet. For those people who have a hard time kind of like 
fitting this in their head as anything other than an action movie, I started really quickly breaking it down almost like Home Alone with all Mm. the different traps and the different ways that he would come up with tricking, I'm going to say, the the bad guys because it's the equivalent of Home Alone. When you have all these different little like moments, and that's what it is, these little vignettes of things that happen, it felt very Home Alone-esque. Like I could see a parallel there. This is how my process started. If 1492 uh, Pictures was part of like the production (laughs) logos, you wouldn't have been completely surprised, you know, in a a way. I would have been like, okay, so 1492 is trying to go a little more adult. It's trying to do this in a little bit different way. But I don't know. If you took Home Alone and you ratcheted it all up and you put an R rating on it, I don't know how you don't get something like this. For sure. I mean, sending bombs down the elevator shafts or. Yes. Uh, how or, is that not paint cans off of the. How is. I was. I, I was going to make the exact same <laughs> uh, comparison to the paint cans off of the stairs. Uh, yes. Yeah. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. I mean. Yes. Yes. Are, are, you, are, you, are, you, are you thirsty for more? You know, are yeah. you all done there? You, you know, they're very similar. Very similar. Kevin McAllister is totally. John McClane, grown up, you know, like, I'm going to hold on to as we process this movie. Well, canonically, uh, Kevin McAllister runs a security firm in the Home Alone-verse. Um, there you go. So maybe he is doing hijinks like uh, <laughs> like John McClane. Infiltrating Christmas parties. Yeah. You know, living out, people. you know, uh, 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 filthy angels with filthy, you know, filthy angels with filthy souls. Is that what it's yeah. called? Yeah, yeah, filthy yeah. Filthy angels yeah. with dirty souls, maybe. Mm, uh, no filthy, I feel like, seems to be in there. Dirty souls does seem right, though, too. Yeah. I mean, if that's Kevin McAllister, like, that's formative for him. Yeah. I have to imagine if he got to see Die Hard, which he could have, you know, maybe if Buzz was watching Die Hard, he walks in on it or something uh yeah he's like this is my inspiration i'm trying to do this the whole Um, thing even with like the fire hose you know mm -hmm. like you know using it as the anchor and then it pulling him down you know like all those things like it's kevin ziplining to his treehouse and getting the line cut yes yes like there's so many parts to it so i was like man okay this is how i'm gonna start looking at this because i know of the debate so i have to tell you i was very fearful about having this conversation with you because i know there's such a raging debate about whether it's a christmas movie or not and so i was like man do i I want to step my little toe into this controversial topic or not. But right away, I tried to start kind of like looking at it, like breaking it down. Like, what am I seeing? What are the parallels to other Christmas movies or not? Or are they not there? Can we talk about the teddy bear and the the big moment of like why this is even happening? Ah, the category of grand gestures. Uh, let us talk about why is he out here because it's important for the story when you get past all the explosions when you get past all of the the violence and and the humor and the jokes and the cat and mouse between hans and john you know why is he here you know he's here for to you know to win his family back essentially right yeah that smells so home alone to me right he's he finally figured out the value of his family what do we think about him coming to Holly? Right. So, so for those who haven't seen the movie, one, you should stop and go watch it. I think it's on, it's on Peacock. <laughs> we never say that in any of these. Do you know that? Do you know, like, we just, we so assume you guys, listeners, have seen the movie. I always think about it after the fact when I'm editing. I'm like, man, we spoiled this so much that I certainly hope that the people watch the movies first. But if you haven't, definitely go watch it first. There's, there's no good print <laughs> available actually of the streaming. It's, I think it's free available in two different 
different places. Uh, I think Amazon Prime has a has a free watch of it with commercials, and Peacock has a version of it. The Peacock version didn't work for me; it kept like uh, flitzing out. Yeah. But uh, the Amazon wasn't a much better print either, and I had to watch like IMDb TV commercials uh, during it, which was kind of weird. Too. Yeah, we were watching commercials, which I was like, "What?" Because yeah. sometimes it would, it would like the way that it would splice it. I was like, "Did I miss a part?" Yeah. There was one particular part where it spliced at an action scene, and it came back to a set of stairs. What? Where did they, who's on the stairs? Like what we were like mid running. And then now we're just like looking at a bare staircase. Like what is happening? Hopefully it wasn't a bad, hopefully it wasn't not an important part. Um, (laughs) Yeah. The guys go watch the movie. I mean, if nothing else, I think this movie is the central viewing for pop culture references. Even still today in 2021, there is a ton of stuff that comes out of Die Hard or was inspired by Die Hard. And this is like at its roots. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to see like a little Bruce Willis ornament coming out of like a little air duct and not know what that means. My favorite meme in the holiday season every year is it's not Christmas until I see Hans Gruber fall from Nakatomi Plaza. It's it's a great (laughs) meme. It's it's uh, Alan Rickman in mid scream as he's falling off of the building. It's my absolute favorite meme ever. And if you don't know Die Hard, then you don't understand it. And you don't understand right. why it is what kicks off the holiday season. And, and, you know, we had this conversation in our last podcast about, like, words that become just universally used, like Grinch or Scrooge or what have you. I feel like Hans Gruber is one that you hear yeah. mm-hmm. people say in reference to villains, and you should know where that comes from. Or, I mean, yippee Kaye. Yeah. yippee Kaye, <laughs> Melon Farmer. That's how it gets. That's that's what the dub is for the broadcast versions of this. Melon farmer. Yippee <laughs> melon farmer. You know that's Hilarious. that's what it is. But that, yeah, so he finally figures out the value of his family, right? Which is right. totally a Kevin McAllister moment of can be. I'm fine without my family, and then I'm not fine without my family, and so I I, I have to do some sort of grand gesture here. The big teddy bear, adorable. Did you did you either ever have one of those or give your kid one of those? I had definitely won a, a couple in my life in my teenage years for girls uh at uh various fairs and such i have never owned one so large myself that's very fancy of you to be winning such large bears. I, i'm not really big into rides but i'm really good at midway games so oh. that was always where I would I would like spend my concentration. It would fall apart if she realized I didn't want to go to the Ferris wheel because I hate heights. <laughs> but she could look pretty brave. I, I could knock milk jugs down and shoot water into a clown's mouth like a boss. So yeah, <laughs> it's played to my strengths. Played to my strengths. Okay, so what did you think about John McClane's counterpart here? We had Bonnie Bedelia playing Holly Gennaro McClane. What do you think? I think this is a kind of female character that is getting depicted a lot in the 80s. You and I, before we start recording, had this had a had a pretty long conversation about how Bonnie Bedelia looks like so many women of the 80s, but in in such a way that that person doesn't exist anymore or women don't look like that anymore, or at least women who get cast as leads in movies don't look like that anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what she's doing her job. You know, she she's she's more of a MacGuffin than anything else, really. Right. She's she's the thing John is chasing and trying to keep safe more than having a ton to do herself. And she adds tension, obviously. You know, they they I think they did a great job layering in the fact that she was using 
using her maiden name and there was the, you know, the picture being face down and all this stuff. Like mm-hmm. there was tension there about, is he going to figure out that Holly could be used as a threat to John, all this kind of stuff. Like felt like that part was great for having her character in here, right. as opposed to just having him have accidentally happened upon a Christmas party and gotten drawn in. Like having this wife husband thing obviously was a huge part of this. Right. And, and I think they do a good enough job with John McClane that you you feel like he's still going to intercede on the part of trying to keep people safe, even if Holly's not at this party, even if he had just wandered into this. He's called to duty. It's like kind of in his blood, whether he wants to or not. The movie ratchets up the stakes in a believable way once Holly gets pulled in as a target of Hans. Once that connection is made by by Hans and his gang, and now John is invested in a comp- on a completely different level. But Holly herself, though, I mean, she it's interesting. She is essentially second in charge of this very large, successful corporation, a Japanese corporation, no less. What does that mean? <laughs> well, the 80s in Japan, the 80s and movies about America and Japan are a really interesting thing. You could do a whole podcast, you know, in of itself. I mean, I suggest everyone go watch like Gung Ho. I mean, there's a line in here. It gets really swallowed up and it's not really clear in the cut where like Takagi, the head of the office, like the first thing he says to like John when like he comes in is like he makes a joke about like Pearl Harbor. This movie is fraught with tensions European and 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 Asian political tensions, which is a whole other thing. The fact that Holly is running essentially this corporation on the West Coast and John has to kind of come to her is this whole interesting dynamic. You know, he's clearly a prideful guy. It's taken him six months to swallow his pride to come out here to see his wife and kids. I don't know that I could have gone six months without going out to L.A. At least to see my kids, even if not my wife. Well, I was feeling your. I was feeling when you said the whole like he is just like a cop to his soul kind of thing. Like he is the person who would show up and would help these people, even if he didn't know anyone. That's what I was kind of like leaning on was like, that's why he hasn't seen his family for six months because Mm. he's so committed when he said there's like bad guys here. I still haven't, you know, captured yet kind of thing. Like, cause you know me, like, you know, the second I'm like, like what, you know, he hasn't seen his family in six months. Like, come on, but no way. Like I believe this guy because he seems like he's, he is so narrow view gotta do my job gotta do my job but i also think is and i think uh, argyle calls him on this it was a little bit of a cat and mouse game though too you know he thought that maybe she would flame out and come back to him come back east yeah so but now it's christmas and christmas changes things it's christmas and you're you're the one without your family john you know holly and the kids are all together you're the one who's not there and how long can you wait you know, you miss Christmas. Christmas is one of those things you really can't skip out on, especially when you have young kids. And so she didn't flame out. It's been six months. It's time, it's time to it's time to go, go west, young man. And so that was a very long winded explanation of, of my feeling about about Bonnie and the Holly character. What's your take on her and how she fits into the movie? The role was so important. Again, I agreed with you wholeheartedly that, boy, she just was interchangeable with about a million different women of the time. But I thought it was really cool, again, because I had this Home Alone, um, I don't know, reference in my head that 
that she's actually real life aunt of Macaulay Culkin and uh, Kit Culkin is her brother. So as I was learning about this movie and understanding more about this movie, I don't know. There was something about that. I swear I want to like hold down Chris Columbus and be like, did you know? Did you know? Did you know anything about like Die Hard? And like when you were doing Home Alone, like was there anything? Were you trying to reference this? (laughs) Like there's like something about it, like a family friendly. You could go the other way. You could say Die Hard's a really severe, more like violent version of Home Alone. Or you could go the other way and say, well, Home Alone came out after this. So maybe Home Alone's the family friendly version of Die Hard. I, I love it. I mean, the connections are there and, and the Bonnie Bedelia, you know, her last name actually being Culkin. Yeah, it's a great connection. Uh, and it, it definitely deepens the Home Alone. It kept uh, making me think. I'm, I'm going to start like a whole conspiracy about this that I'll be like, it's actually connected. We're sending you red <laughs> yarn as we, a red string as we're, as we're talking. It's being shipped to you for your conspiracy board. <laughs> we have to talk about Alan Rickman, I think, because he makes this movie go, I really think, as much as Bruce Willis does, if not more. The shocking thing is, this is Alan Rickman's first movie role. He had he was a theater guy. That's actually how he got discovered. Uh, the producers saw him in a play. But otherwise, he had done some TV. He had never been in a movie before. He had just moved out to L.A. actually the week before landing this role. This is a very young, new Alan Rickman, even though he's 42 at the time. How how does he fit in this movie for you? You know, there's something so menacing about him <laughs> that that I, I you know I it's working backwards for me because obviously I'm coming from more like Harry Potter, old Snape face. There's no way that he's not going to be like a scary dude to me. I think he's terrific. I think he sells villain, but smart villain, calculating villain in a very believable way. You know, he's no wet bandits. That's for sure. Charismatic villain though too. I yeah. say that's I think uh, an aspect of Alan Rickman in all of his performances, even as Snape, even when you don't want to like him, you kind of still like him. I would definitely say there's an energy about him that is palpable, even when he plays this flat, monotone version of himself, because he, but he still maintains this energy. It's like he's like there's electricity around him, but he's not coming off energetic he's coming off like very steady not no highs and lows but you can see like the lines coming off of him you should be scared (laughs) you should be scared but i also can't look away from him i am always leaning forward when hans gruber is on screen especially when he goes into the quiet delivery mm-hmm. when he gets quiet you lean forward because one you want to hear what he's going to say but also they, like you said there's lines coming off of him this vibe coming off of him is like what is he going to do because he he's may so shoot menacing. you he may shoot you he may make a joke you don't know you don't know there 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 is a predictable unpredictability about his menace and his personality and his, I mean, he he cracks some jokes in this. I mean, he's in the scene with Takagi. They're having this very like elder statesman kind of conversation about the code and, you know, give me the code and no, and I won't ask again. And and this kind of very back and forth. And then he just shoots him without hesitation. The scariest kind of villain, because he is so his pulse never elevates. He never shows being caught off guard or angry 
he is always at the same level. His heartbeat never rises or falls. That is a terrifying person to watch. The scene that scared me, actually, which is gonna was probably going to surprise people, is the scene where Holly comes in to ask about the couch for her pregnant admin and, and wants to have her go lay down because she's pregnant. The way that that back and forth goes, you think she could be shot in the head like, at any second. So the fact that he's like, that's like a reasonable request, that and like the fact that she's like, can, you know, can you start having people go to you know, use the bathroom and stuff like that? That was so tension filled, even yeah. though, I mean, what a what a really like a benign scene, really. He's just so pulsating with this like spooky energy that you're like, I don't want you to talk to him at all. Like you should just let people be in the bushes. Whatever happens, happens. Like have right. her lay down on the floor. Like you, like I felt nervous the whole time. And or his interaction with Ellis, you get the impression he's so bemused by this coked out L.A. guy, but also kind of disgusted at him, too. Like this idea, you know, like Ellis comes in, who's played, you know, Ellis is Ellis is the guy you root for, at least I do anyway, to be killed the most in the movie. <laughs> and and I think that's a credit. Uh, Hart, the guy, the actor's name is Hart Bachner, plays him. It's a credit to how sleazy he makes Ellis. But when he comes in, he's all Hans Booby. You know, that whole scene is fantastic because you really get the idea that Hans, even to Hans, he's like. I am better than this guy. Like, he, you know, he he looks like Ellis, like he is this kind of cockroachy cre- creature. And there's a part of you that's kind of like, yeah, I'm rooting for, like, I'm on Hans's side here in in this conversation with Ellis. I have no sadness when when Ellis gets killed. But he's also like this traitor's guy. He's he's essentially trying to trade in John to save his own bacon, kind of thing. After John has been trying to save all of them. The way Hans interacts with Carl and his other henchmen, the way he interacts with Holly, the way he interacts with Ellis, the way he interacts with John are all different. They're all unique. You know, he doesn't have one set interaction with everyone. It's all, I think, a very unique kind of interaction. I think he treats John with like a decent amount of respect. You know, kind of game, you know, recognizes game kind of thing. He takes the threat seriously after not very long. He respects Holly as the one in charge. Ellis is expendable. Maybe he can bring us John, but maybe this guy's full of, you know, full of crap. We'll kill him. And that's no big deal either. You know, it's all very unique interactions, which I think is a testament to how Rickman plays Hans because it makes him multi-layered. Absolutely. Uh, my favorite interaction that is in this movie is between John and Al. Like those two, mm. they make me smile. And the, the, especially, I mean, at the end, I mean, they're big, they're big teddy bear hugs. I mean, I love it so much. What did you think of Al and, and the role of having this sort of like beat cop be like the one who has to try to explain it to the rest of them? Reginald Vell Johnson, who plays Al Powell, is one of my favorite people to see on the screen. There is just this Big, giant teddy bear energy always coming off of him that I love so, so much. And and every time I watch Die Hard, I'm reminded of it. But, I mean, he goes on to make Family Matters. Oh, yeah. You know, where he's playing Carl, a cop also. He's the ideal cop, and he will do anything he can to keep you safe. He's the one that you want to teach your kids, you know, if you're in trouble, find a policeman on the corner, a beat cop on the corner, and they'll help you. But I feel like we learned that growing up, and I, certainly our, our parents above us generation, I feel like they're talking about Al Powell. Who Who's expecting the kind of character development? 
moment that you get where he reveals that he's on the beat because he shot a kid by accident and it's haunting yeah. him. And then yeah. he has to face down those demons at the end of the movie. And he literally saves John and Holly. They, they haven't even actually ever met. Right. And then they just kind of start laughing and then they hug and just their chemistry. It's, it's because they're two cops who know what it is to be a cop. And that's the language they speak. I love that because that comes across so clearly. And that's the thing like the suits, right? That all the guys who are not in uniform above them miss, right? They all want to write off John as a crackpot or as maybe a, a conspirator or as, as a dangerous a force as the terrorists themselves. Al gets it. Al, Al recognizes John for who he is. And John recognizes Al for who he is. How about you? What do you think of Reginald L. Johnson and the Al Powell character here? I mean, I think he was welcome breath of fresh air. Like every single time he got involved, it was like, oh, thank God Al's here. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and his persistence and his belief in what was going on and, and continuing to be the voice of reason in terms of like, this is what's actually happening. You guys are missing this entirely. You're you're putting your head down and just stubbornly moving ahead and you're not listening. We needed that as the audience to be like, please, someone understand what's happening. Happening. And and Al was just perfect for that because he is this sort of softer. He's not like you know Johnson and Johnson, the two uh, FBI agents. He's not like this this hard kind of guy. He's he's this softer, kinder kind of guy that you feel like okay, he he is actually hearing and and reading between the lines of everything that's happening. I I loved him every time he came on the screen. I was like, oh, thank you, Al. <laughs> right, because remember, Please. right, because he's not he's not a B cop because he's bad at his job. He's a beat cop because he's dealing with like the PTSD of this horrible incident but his cop instincts are excellent and they are on point that's why he gets it though the scene where he backs all the way up that he goes down into the culvert is <laughs> yeah. makes me laugh so hard every single time yes. you know but I mean he's a good cop right he's got the right cop instincts you know like I think you know sir I think this guy's a cop he could be a bartender for all we know like oh my god that guy's you know Roger Ebert actually gave this movie a bad review view essentially because of the assistant chief of police role he said that that character ruined the whole movie for him in how outrageously dumb and annoying he was tainted the whole movie experience for him because he was outrageously bad at his job that it infuriated him and i have the same feeling anytime he's on the screen you know and they're not <laughs> listening to john and, and they're and they're dismissing al and then when the johnson's you know johnson and johnson no relation come into the scene you know all these guys they're so they're so up their own butts they never stop to ask the questions that good cops are going to be asking at least that's what the movie's telling us you know they're 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 looking for what they what they expect to happen versus maybe what is actually happening. It feels very 80s, though. Doesn't it feel like very much like in Ghostbusters, you know, the the authority figures who don't listen, like there always has to be like the one who just just can't get it through their heads, you know, that this could be happening. There's always has to be somebody, right? These are the devils that you need, right? Yeah, there has to be obstacles. Yeah. And so I kind of want to raise my eyebrow at Roger and be like, really? So all the cops should have understood everything that was happening from the outside, all believed Al and 100% orchestrated a perfect saving system. Like, it can't, you can't do that and have John McClane be the hero. Like, there has to be outside obstacles that create, like, this complete breakdown to where he really isn't having any help from the outside. The cops' response is essential to this movie because Hans Gruber is banking this entire bank heist on the cops exa behaving exactly the way they behave and the FBI behaving the exact way they behave. 
for those that haven't seen it, either go watch the movie or you're going to be spoiled now. But the giant twist of this is, in fact, that Hans and his German fellows are not actually terrorists. They're just really sophisticated bank robbers. They're using the guise of the terrorists because they need the FBI to follow the quote unquote playbook for how the government deals with terrorists to try and end hostage situations, which involves cutting off the power, which is what they need in order to break open the bank vault, essentially. It's the genius of Hans Gruber that he knows the police are going to be so automaton that they're not going to be rogue, think outside the box guys like John McLean. That's why John is such a threat to him on top of the fact that he's taking out his guys one by one, he hasn't accounted for because he can't predict what a John McLean is going to do, can't predict what a cowboy is going to do. You can predict what the FBI is going to do. You can predict what the chief, the assistant chief of police, you know, L.A. police is going to do. You can't predict an Al Powell. You can't predict a John McLean. Fans of 80s movies, at least me anyway, uh, knows Carl right away. The, the actor is Alexander Godunov. Well, so I had watched the movies that made us. And so I knew that he was a ballet dancer. And then I knew that he went on to do some other 80s movies. But again, I wasn't really like into the genre he was into. So tell us about your relationship with Carl. Carl plays a romantic rival to Tom Hanks in The Money Pit. Yes, I totally remember that. Now he's the conductor, right? He is the conductor who who woos or tries to woo Shelley Long away from Tom Hanks in The Money Pit. Another movie that features the Ode to Joy, which he is conducting in that movie and is just being played in this movie when the bank vault finally opens. Huge fan of The Money Pit. It's one of my favorite movies. That I did see in the theaters. Really? What in the world about that one? It, it, it makes me laugh every single time. I, I mean, I, I am a big Tom Hanks fan. That movie introduced me to Tom Hanks, though, and has I've watched it so many times since I saw it in the theaters. I remember very clearly I dropped a hot dog on the floor uh, before the movie <laughs> started. My, there was my sisters and their friends. They like took me along oh. as like their little brother. And I had a little, little crush on one of the friends and I dropped my hot dog and I tried to keep it really hard. Like I tried to keep it together and not get upset about the fact that I dropped my hot dog. But I was oh. very upset about this hot dog incident. In the <laughs> like embarrassed or like sad because you were hungry? <laughs> Both, both. I'm also also <laughs> embarrassed, you know, and so I didn't want to like make a thing about it and be like, "Oh, your little brother is annoying us to totally go get another hot dog." That hot dog under the chair ahead of me. I would definitely would not act like I even knew what that hot dog was. Oh, I did. I, I, I was like, I never had a hot dog. I just had this empty bun. It was the meat. <laughs> it was the dog. I had the bun. I just like had the, 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 I had the bun. The the dog itself is what got away from me. So oh it was just God, like this fool. Yes. Anyway, but a big fan of the money pit. So when I said. When every time I see Alexander uh, on the screen, I think of the Money Pit and I think of the Ode to Joy. So it's perfect synergy for me. The the 80s were a great time to be alive if you're Mike Caputo. So. There's a lot of fun stuff going on. I, oh, I agree so with much you. Fun. So now, much fun. Now I feel like, boy, would I, would I like, you know, send my kids to the movies like that? Like, man, there was always safety in numbers and stuff. Now it feels like. Yeah, the theater was like six. It was like a six blocks, six blocks away. You could walk it. It was a different time. I mean, but there it felt safer we, for some reason, even though I don't think it was but it felt it i think our parents just didn't care <laughs> i think i think we were just i think it was you my know i had no idea where i was no. every day my parents, no, no i was completely unaccountable until the sun until sundown 
Agree. Wild times. Wild times. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I just want to mention. Uh, uh, Can I tell Alex you how my parents roof. tried to keep like, keep tabs on me? They would give me like a chore list of things that I had to do, and then so basically, like I guess that would like supposedly keep me busy. Do you want to know how I got the chore list done? How? Anything outdoors, I paid the neighbor boy to do. <laughs> There you go. There you go. <laughs> I, I would have Chris Mead handle all that, and uh, and uh, and he would he would mow the lawn and stuff for me, and then I could just go about my day. <laughs> I was riding my bike down the center of the street, and it hit uh, the manhole cover. Happened to be raised, and I wasn't paying attention. I was riding down without. I was demonstrating my ability to ride without my hands on the handlebars. I was a pretty good bike rider, and sure. I was and I was able to do all sorts of As tricks one and things. Does. Yes. And so uh, my front tire hit a raised manhole cover basically Oof. in front of my house. And I went flying over my handlebars oh. and I slid a good five feet on my chest. Oh, like kind God. of like a picture, like my whole body splayed, my legs up in the air, like keeping my head up so it wasn't hitting in the ground because obviously not wearing a helmet. Uh, and so my chest took the fall and I and I slid down the gravel streets, you know, of Queens on my chest. My entire chest was just shredded. I had I had gravel in it. It was cut. It was bleeding. I stood up and my friends had gathered around. And the only thing I was saying was, don't tell my parents. Don't tell oh, my parents. For no, sure. one, no one tell my parents because my grandmother. You should have paused there and said, what do you think I said? And I said, everyone would have said, don't tell our parents. Yeah, don't tell my parents. <laughs> and I, they never knew. This is how checked out parents were in the 80s. How did you deal with your own chest? I cleaned it. I just administrated myself and I wore loose clothing for the next week. But my, oh, my, my chest, God. it looked like I had been flayed. Do you have scars and stuff on it now? No, no, no. I did a pretty good job. It was, you know... My chest is not as hairy as my stomach is. I mean, a, a little glimpse Uh-oh. behind the screen, but maybe, See? maybe it did. Maybe because it's a little unbalanced. It- <laughs> yeah, it, it looked like I had been flayed by some monster. Yeah, and and my, they, they never knew. I, I give you that story one just because I, you know, I love guy, telling you guys all about my personal life, but two just to show you how checked out parents were. A parent, I feel like should should probably realize if their kid's chest is completely minced meat. But there you go. Gross. So that is sick, man. All right, we're Let's into talk about is Christmas, Christmas movie. movie right? <laughs> yes, All please. right, so what do you think, Mike? Let's hear it. It is. It's it's definitely an alternative Christmas movie, but it's it's dealing with the theme of family. It's dealing with what wouldn't you do in order to get back to your family and keep them safe. John McClane is uh, Catherine O'Hara in Home Alone. That that's what it is. She's trying to get home. She's trying to get back to her family. He's trying to get back to his wife he wants to make it back to his kids no we haven't even talked about the fact that the news reporter going to the kids house and putting them all on tv oh after ellis that, that guy so deserves terrible. to get that the guy deserves to get punched in the face the way holly Agree. punches him yeah the two biggest villains of this movie are ellis and the news reporter <laughs> yes um yeah yeah who is the dude from ghostbusters who, who doesn't the believe du- them <laughs> who is the dude from ghostbusters <laughs> that guy was the worst i feel like that was such yes. a that was such a thing though in the 80s you played the same role and whatever movie you got you just played that guy all yeah. the time for you're sure. just that guy now <laughs> you're just that guy now i i don't subscribe to it takes place at christmas so it's a christmas movie there has to be something more there but john probably not coming out to la if it's not christmas time right he is waiting holly out a bit 
But now it's Christmas time and he's got kids and he's got a wife who he hasn't seen. He's got to get out. He's got to go out and see them. That only really happens at Christmas time. Thanksgiving didn't propel him out to L.A. Christmas is. So that's one. It has to take place at Christmas in order to get him on that plane. Two, for purposes of the German bank heist, the German terrorist bank heist, you need a time when the building is going to be relatively empty and a modern skyscraper especially one that's conducting, you know, finance or worldwide finance is busy all the time. It's busy 24 hours a day because there are markets opening and closing all around the world, all times of the day. So you need to pick a specific time of the year when the building is going to be its most empty. Christmas is only one of those few times of the year a building like Nakatomi Plaza is going to be largely empty. So has to be at Christmas time. It has to be at Christmas time. It just doesn't happen to take place at Christmas time. So for me, those are the two big reasons it's a Christmas movie. How about you? Okay, so I'm going back to my how we break down these movies and figuring out like where does this fit in with some of the other themes and and other things going on and other movies that we most definitely agreed were Christmas movies. So some of the things that we had were, does it have Christmas music? I would say, yes, it totally did up until like the very end, which I really wish they just had like kept with it. They were playing Christmas music throughout and I I was impressed. The opening song is Hollis, uh, Christmas and Hollis by Run DMC. I grew up right next door to Hollis, grew up in Flushing. That song That song screams Christmas to me. (laughs) Again, though, I agree with you. Alternative version of Christmas. This isn't just about like, you know, your family sitting around opening presents or something like that. But it is about family. I mean, at the end of the day, I know we said, would John actually fight for these people if Holly wasn't there? And I know we said that, that he would, but he wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the family portion of it all. So I agree with that. The Christmas party is important to me when you were talking about all the other holidays. I think that what's tricky about this is that they're willing to ignore a lot of stuff that's going on. I think the police and everybody else, because there's like a party going on. So like the, the fire alarm being pulled or stuff like that. And people, oh, they're, they're just having fun, you know, like that kind of stuff might have been followed up on had there not been a Christmas party happening and that's like the one time a year you're allowed to kind of have the building look like different than it normally looks is that fair to say right and people laying down their guards maybe the security is not paying attention going right Right, people you don't normally see because people are bringing guests or whatever right people coming and going it's it's all like a little like not by the book that day so that helps because that's like that that gives you your your ins here additionally like i mean i'm going back to that home alone feeling like if you get if you just call these guys robbers right that's it. That, I don't know how that's so much different than Wet Bandits. And you have all these different little traps and tricks and all this kind of stuff with the end game of us having Christmas together as a family. I mean, if you call Home Alone a Christmas movie, I don't know how this one's not a Christmas movie. So I'm landing on is a Christmas movie. I love it. I love it. Well, I think we need to do a few fast facts before we get into our Jingle Bell rings because this movie, Caroline, I got to tell you, I trimmed it down to about four four pages of, of trivia. This yeah. movie had over 14 pages of trivia when I first started working I'm telling it. you, that one hour, um, you know, the movies that made us special is packed with with information. There was a lot going on in this film. But, uh, why don't you hit us up with a fast fact, Caroline? The character of Hans Gruber is rumored to be based on the author Roderick Thorpe's father, a known tyrant amongst family and friends. Wow. Painful. Uh, yeah. Painful and also not great for anyone. That fact that that's written down and known. <laughs> Right. That's one of those things that makes Christmas dinner. I think the Hans Grubers of the world don't care. 
uh, probably true. I make about his, uh, make about he did though. <laughs> so Bruce Willis's exhaustion from his schedule, he was also shooting Moonlighting at the same time, forced uh, uh, screenwriter Stephen E. D'Souza to beef up the roles of the other characters. So it ended up with people like Al Powell, Ellis, Argyle. They all ended up having more personality and more lines and more screen time. And John McTiernan also arranged a lot of the shooting so that Bruce Willis could take like little naps between because he would work on Moonlighting during the day, come basically shoot at nighttime. Uh, and so he, you know, John McTiernan tried to like arrange the shoot around giving him some rest because this is a lot of work to be doing if you're tired. Well, and additionally, the people who worked in the office during the day were uninterested in all their running around and shooting. So they ended up doing a lot of it at night just because there were so many so much complaints about them. So there's a ton of casting about this movie. This is one of those things where virtually everyone who was a no name in the late 80s was considered for the role of John McClane. Uh, here are some of the people. Richard Gere, Sylvester Stallone, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Clint Eastwood, who actually owned the rights to this movie originally in the early 80s and planned on making it and starring it in himself. Robert De Niro, Charles Bronson, Don Johnson, Richard Dean Anderson, original MacGyver, Burt Reynolds. And Michael Madsen were all considered, but declined the role of John McLean. I think Harrison Ford would have been great in this one. I would believe that. Yeah. I mean, he eventually goes on to make Air Force One, right? I mean, Air Force yeah. One is kind of diehard on a plane-ish. <laughs> Bruce Willis suffered permanent hearing loss while shooting, no pun intended, a scene in the Nakatomi conference room. Willis said in an interview, due to an accident on the first diehard, I suffered two-thirds partial hearing loss in my left ear, and the actor has worn a hearing aid for years. The scene where John and Hans Gruber meet each other for the first time, it was unrehearsed. The The actors and John McTiernan didn't want it rehearsed because it wanted to have a more spontaneous feeling to it. So I found this fascinating, especially because the summary calls them terrorists. John McTiernan did not want the villain to be terrorists, considering them too mean, and he chose to avoid the terrorist politics in favor of making them thieves in pursuit of monetary gain, believing it would make them, the film more suitable for summer entertainment. I agree with that. I agree that that actually makes it like more palatable, that they're not so scary because they don't want anything to do with the people. They just want to get those bear bonds. So I feel like that's like a very smart move on John McTiernan's part. Why do they have $640 million worth of bearer bonds in their vault? That's very suspicious. The idea behind a bearer bond is the government will honor it no matter who presents it. So it's very suspicious that they would be sitting on $640 million worth of these bonds in their vault and not <laughs> in a bank somewhere or, or something else. Very, very suspicious. What kind of thing was uh, uh, Takagi and Holly, what, what were they actually doing as a business? Fascinating. Yes, yes. And maybe why they would be the subject or the target of a Hans Gruber-like organization. Maybe he knows they're not going to raise the red flag on the thievery too, too much because whatever they're into, maybe they want to keep quiet. Bruce Willis got married to Demi Moore over the course of the shoot of this movie. And in between takes, John uh, Bruce Willis didn't actually hang out with the cast much. He spent basically all of his time with uh, Demi Moore. So he didn't become particularly close to Reginald Vell Johnson or Alan Rickman or Bonnie Bedelia. Those three, though, hung out all the time together. And Bonnie Bedelia, when you ask her about Die Hard even now, the first thing she'll tell you is about Alan Rickman and how wonderful a person he was and how close of friends they became. And because of the time they spent bonding on the set, Bruce Willis, very standoffish, though. 
Well, he's off with his new bride. I don't know if that has to be standoffish as much as in love, right? Live. Uh, you remember the time of Demi and Bruce? Yes. That was a simpler goodness. time. Yes. That was a simpler yes. time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You know, the the quintessential shot that you talked about with Hans Gruber falling from the top of the building, that one was so awesome in that um, movies that made us because they, they talk about it so much. I love the way that they got it, that basically Alan Rickman was falling from this 21 foot high model and they were going to count for him one, two, three, but they told him to actually drop Rickman on two, not three. So that face that he's making of like, oh my God, <laughs> like that's real. And I, I feel like that, that kind of stuff makes these movies. It uh, really does. It really does. Uh, uh, similarly, when Hart Buckner does the Hans Booby line, uh, when yeah. Ellis comes into the thing, that whole <laughs> that whole sequence was ad lib. So when they cut to Hans Gruber and his face is like a little quizzical, like, what is this guy? Who is this guy? That was Alan Rickman's like honest reaction to that. <laughs> The costume department actually prepared 17 undershirts for John McClane that were all in various stages of degradation for Bruce Willis to wear. In 2007, Bruce Willis donated John McClane's undershirts to the Smithsonian Museum. I love that. The fact that his undershirts would even go in the Smithsonian should imply that Roger Ebert is wrong. I mean, yeah, this movie ends up actually even being admitted to the National Film Registry in 2017. Jeb Stewart, who was one of the writers, was having difficulty writing the screenplay until he had a near-death experience while driving at night in Los Angeles after a fight with his wife. He was driving behind a truck that was carrying refrigerators, and one of the fridge boxes fell out of the truck. Luckily for him, the box was empty, but he realized if he had died he wouldn't have been able to apologize to his wife and this inspired him to give clear motivations to john mcclain and holly's characters they wanted to reunite with each other after having a fight i think that's wonderful at christmas time he doesn't at get better than that christmas you have to tell the truth at christmas you have that's to what tell. we learned you've got to tell your true feelings at christmas just another reason why i think this is a christmas movie i love that that has become such a a, 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 a touchstone for us to right? refer back to it's a, it's an important it's line part of what we're learning here folks this is a, this is a constant collection of facts that we're we're collecting for you love actually is all around <laughs> 20th century fox the production company behind the Die Hard franchise formally said Die Hard is a christmas movie after stating quote it's the greatest christmas story ever told uh they used that line in a trailer to mark the 30th anniversary of the film's release debate over mic drop <laughs> done <laughs> the company that made the movie said it's a christmas movie some of this is going to get washed out in the jingle bell ratings score wise of it's a Christmas movie, but how effective of a Christmas movie is it? So with that being said, you want to head into Jingle Bells? Yeah. And remember, folks, these are Jingle Bell ratings, meaning how good of a Christmas movie it is, not how good of a movie we think it is. Exactly. But before that, can I play you a clip from next week's final movie, the 52nd week of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast? Can I play you a clip? Please, please, yes, please. Yes, you can. All please. Right. Hallelujah. Holy shit. Where's the Tylenol? <laughs> well of course it's national lampoon's christmas vacation caroline yes why did your partner in crime here mike why did i save this for the last movie that we're doing i'm the not podcast? gonna tell now you'll have to listen next week to find <gasps> out Ooh, she's dangling she's dangling <laughs> folks lord I'm tell you <laughs> lord
All right, Jingle Ball ratings, Mike. You're up. I want to go first in the last one. <laughs> All righty. I'm giving this 8.25. It probably should be an 8, but I was looking over my spreadsheet and I gave some movies 8s that probably should be lower than that. I love this movie. This movie is very important to me. It is one of my favorites. I love Bruce Willis. I love Die Hard. I love everything about it. It is so quotable. I think it has had a major impact on pop culture. I think it has made an impact on movies. I think it's iconic. I think it is a Christmas movie. It's not the best Christmas movie for, for a couple of reasons. One, it's definitely putting its emphasis on the action aspect of it. If you only get out of this movie loud explosions, loud guns. Well, that's intentional. They turned up all the muzzle flashes. They they intensified all of the explosions and the sound design in this movie. This movie was actually nominated for its sound design uh, for, an, for an Academy Award. This movie was actually nominated for four Academy Awards, uh, editing, visual effects, sound editing, and sound design. It does talk about family. It does need to take place at Christmas. It is in the Home Alone shenanigans vein of of traps and clever and clever tricking of the bad guys to achieve your aims and get reunited with your family. And at the end of the day, it's it's two people who didn't get a chance to say I love you. And now they're in mortal peril and they have to get back to each other so they can make up and make things right at Christmas time. But it's not a movie you can watch with your family. Not everyone can sit around the old couch and throw on Die Hard. There are this movie is excessively violent. It's got other adult themes. It is very properly a rated R movie. It's not something you could you should have your six or seven year olds watching with you. I had no. to make a real decision to have my thirteen year old who watches mature things and handles and can handle mature topics. I had to make a decision to let him watch this, and I only because I was watching it with him. I don't know that Nana and Grandpa are going to want to watch this movie, uh, you know, and be cool with it for the best Christmas movies that we've covered on this podcast. They play for everyone in the house. Maybe not meant for everyone, but at least you can have it on for everyone. Die Hard is not a movie you can just throw on at a party and be cool with for people of all ages. I think it's a Christmas movie. I think it has other strengths and other things that it's better at than being a Christmas movie. But for me, it, it holds a special Christmas movie place in my heart. 8.25 Jingle Bells for me. How about you, Caroline? Awesome, Mike. We're right in the same neighborhood. I was going to give it an 8. Same types of reasoning. I think that the the entire, you have to tell the truth at Christmas, that, that it, there's a different motivation at Christmas time to make things right and to, and to set things right for the new year. I think that there's something huge there. And the family aspect, you know, that he's doing this for his family. That's also huge. They did play all the Christmas music. There was lots in there. Again, kind of alternative versions, not always like the classic Christmas song that you're expecting to hear. But I think that this is right for if you're having an all adult, you know, ugly Christmas party, stick it on in the background. If you're having, you know, if you are just maybe you're maybe it's just you and your and your partner and you're watching a movie or something like that. This is great. I think if you're older and maybe you're kind of a little bit over some of the completely traditional all family, everybody holding hands. If you don't have that as part of your Christmas, maybe you don't want to watch that. So I could absolutely see why someone would make this be a part of their Christmas holiday tradition. And I love the connection to Home Alone, which is just automatically giving me some extra little nudge towards Christmas stuff. So I I'm giving it eight jingle bells. All works for me. I mean, I think <laughs> this definitely falls in the alternative movie uh, category. But if, if you haven't watched it or you haven't watched it in a few years, 
Go throw it on this holiday season. I think I think you'll you'll be amused by it and you're going to have a good time. You know, listen, it's two hours of pulse pounding. Excellent time. And you get to hear it's a Carlson good movie, it period. Good. Like it yes. has good twists and turns, which I think is not always the case, which is funny because when it opened, it actually opened up to mixed reviews. I mean, Roger Ebert was the only wasn't the only one who dinged this movie, but it was a certifiable hit. It spawned a whole franchise of movies, it made one hundred and forty one million dollars, you know, 1980 eight dollars at the at the box office this movie is a hit and you know millions and millions of people can't be wrong it's worth watching folks <laughs> this is caroline and this is mike thank you for listening to the 52 weeks of christmas podcast if you wouldn't mind heading over to apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate review and subscribe that would be most appreciated and while you're there if you could leave us a five-star rating that would be great you know come out to the coast have a few laughs have a few drinks it'll be a good time <laughs> thanks for listening Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.